Welcome to the Stories Are Soul Food podcast, presented by Cannonball Books, the kids' fiction imprint of Cannon Press. So I followed the ghost of a king with every step I tried to see beyond for trace of the riverside. Welcome. We have arrived at the dulcet tones of the Grey Havens. Yep. And Ghost of a King. I feel like we should slide through the song and just over time play the whole thing wow don't you think so given that david just gave us a blank permission to use the song i feel like we should even the boring that. parts no, I'm this is this is me checking to see that david is still listening well i just let's heard. use the entirety of the song as much as possible now i turn sideways and sip loudly from my mcdonald's diet coke <laughs> uh okay noted audio editor noted i think i hit that swallow pretty well that was good i didn't hear anything <laughs> usually i that right there the sign of a pro uh, well me i'm just over here gargling <laughs> into the microphone okay episode 80 of sasf welcome everyone yeah we have kind of a kind of a dual episode today okay answering a question about someone uh, well i should just read it and then also wanting to talk about your own work i thought a good okay. a good 80th episode would be your your first is self, it first feature self can we call it self Reflection or self-absorption? What do we call it? Well, it depends on how the episode goes. <laughs> <laughs> Let's try to avoid self-absorption if possible. Okay. All right. Sass. Well, for that episode we, eighty, we start not with, self-absorption. We start with the listeners. That's how we okay. avoid self-absorption. Hello, listeners. This is a question from William. Love your guys' podcast, and I'm so glad you continue to push out episodes. <laughs> I think it's a birth metaphor. Push mm. them out. I don't know. Mm. Uh, Egg lane. We're like <laughs> we're like hens. We are the hens of SASF. We lay eggs once weekly. <laughs> 80 of them. Also, because the metaphor of laying eggs works great for this podcast as well. Yeah. A podcast in which we lay eggs. Mm, I like it. That's good. Uh, he says, I'm a 19-year-old looking to work in the movie entertainment industry. The only issue is, <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> he says, the only one. The only one. Uh, I'm not sure <laughs> where to put myself. Where can someone find God-fearing actors slash writers, producers that can also produce great movies and stories? That's the question. I apologize. This is reminding me to send a text. Pause. <laughs> no, it's, it's okay. I can do these things at the same time. This is a text to a kid who has the same exact question that I haven't been getting back to. Uh, wow. He can just listen to this. He can consume this egg. I'm in town this week. Uh, okay. So anyway, as, as far where should I put myself? That's a really interesting question. Where should I put myself? Yeah. I mean, I assume he means both. He see, he, I assume he means geographically because I remember having this discussion with lots of friends in college too, who were telling me you have to move to LA if you want to be in the right. movie and the industry. Well, is that still true? The question was not specific about what he wants to do in the film industry yeah right nope uh, and it could be it's possible that uh, instead of actors that's usually a pretty bad sign um you know he wants to find god-fearing actors writers and producers he just wants to find the whole why, why does he squad. want to find god-fearing actors who cares well, about god-fearing actors well do you not care i don't care you just want them to be good i'd rather just have them be talented because it you make the film you want, and then if the actor does the right job. Yeah, I mean, 
Okay. What about God-fearing writers? Do you need those? <laughs> Depends. <laughs> are you on a, are you working a show and are you in charge or are you looking for a feature writer? Right. Uh, even there, you want talent. Then it depends on how much leverage you have and how much authority you have. Same thing for a producer, right? You don't so if you're going to build a house and you think, man, where can I find a God-fearing plumber? Yeah. Like, you know what? That'd be great if you can find a God-fearing plumber, but it'd be much better if you could just find somebody who can run pipe without leaks. Mm. The scenic sewage, <laughs> sewage that doesn't back up. Yeah. The, the problem that Christians have overwhelmingly in the film industry over the last generation is this brotherhood loyalty that, that just binds them to Velveeta cheese instead of to uh, truth, goodness, and beauty. So instead of having their eyes and their loyalty on God the Father, his creation, and honoring him and trying to tell great stories that honor God, they are looking for you know, some kind of industry connection where everybody believes. And I, th I think that that, while great, it's great to find believers. It's great to work with believers. It's really encouraging to work with believers. It can also be really depressing. It you, can be far more depressing. You just mean because it's not good? Because A, it can be not good, and B, because they can be, would you rather work with an unbeliever who lives like an unbeliever or a believer who lives like an unbeliever? Ah. So. Okay. You know, I, I, know a pl I know plenty of believers who are in the industry uh, and plenty that I like, but it's, it's like a lifeboat where there's the people who are pursuing quality. It's like a tiny, tiny lifeboat of, of people all trying to scramble in and everybody claiming that they're not the cheesy ones <laughs> and they swear and they try to prove that they're not the cheesy ones by being edgy, by being grotesque. Mm. you know how do you prove that you're not cheesy butts <laughs> you know, it's like right yeah. f-bombs right um so i mean it's a tangled mess it's a really tangled mess and so any young any young person uh needs to focus entirely on becoming excellent at their craft and and pursue excellence wherever you are don't worry about relocation unless you are excellent i mean just gotcha. Become excellent. And if you say, well, where do I go to become excellent? That's a different question. Where do I go to become excellent and not be destroyed as a human? Like, okay, that's a good question. But where do I go to find people who will give me the free hookup because I also happen to be, be a believer is a terrible question. Gotcha. Okay. So you're saying that's not even successful for becoming a, a success. No. <laughs> um, it, it starts... I guess that same problem happens with novels because absolutely because yeah. you you if you write a novel that has dirty stuff in it, well, immediately people start virtue signaling the other way if they find out, oh, I'm a Christian novelist, yep. uh, but not that kind. They'll say because they assume you mean Amish romance or something. Yeah, and like I, I kind of ricochet through where I have people who condemn me for writing middle grade novels that have magic, uh, have darkness or things that are creepy or scary. Uh, and I advise anybody concerned about that to listen to our previous podcast episodes or read my article on the Atlantic monthly <laughs> about why I write scary stories for children. Um, it's not just, it's not thoughtless, but there are Christians who will have nothing to do with me. They recoil from me because I think I'm, I'm too, 
real. You know, it's too much. And then there are those people who, who sidle up to me and say, I'm so, I'm so glad you're not one of them. And by them, they mean mean those people in the gospel industrial complex over there producing cheese. Mm. And I'm not, you know, I just don't fit on either of those stools. I'm not somebody just over in the world trying to distance themselves from the church or from the Bible or from belief. I'm not. I am an Orthodox believer, right? Just right down the middle. I remember getting on an airplane once and seeing my seat and, and seeing an author that I had done an event with in the seat next to my seat. And this author had won a national book award and was, had their, had their Bible out and was reading the Bible. And as I got on the plane and I moved towards my row, I recognized the physics of a Bible being read and they kind of glanced up and saw me and jerked like they were reading porn slam that thing shut and hit it oh no <laughs> <laughs> that feels like the perfect segue to and just, i was like to discussing oh wow the faith. and i laughed and said hey you don't need to hide that from me and and it turned into a very like strange two-hour conversation on a flight did they explain why they hit it yeah just deeply well, not wanting to be imperialistic, not wanting to impose, not wanting to be okay. threatening, not wanting to be seen as a Christian, wanting their work to be taken on face value. There's tons of insecurities, just massive insecurities. Huh. And so, you know, as I was explaining, like, no, I, I'm all for that. And I don't just think it's great to read it. I believe it, you know, and they were far more liberal. And, you know, I was the fire breathing Bible believer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I'm, that's where I am. I am this, I'm a Bible believing Christian. And so I don't want to hide that fact, but that means a lot of the fundamentalists can get upset at me for the kind of things I would do, like making movies or, or making a show on Netflix. Mm-hmm. How dare you? I'm going to boycott you. They say, you know, like this is, don't you know what you're supporting? Uh, you know, that I'm in this mainstream that they, that they are, are trying to pull themselves out of. Uh, and then on the flip side, I've got these other people who are all about distancing themselves from any kind of visible Christianity. And so they, they're really pleased to be associated with me because I'm on Netflix or, uh, okay. or something like that. So I kind of careen between those two. Yeah. Just random, by the way, question, how do you sort of decide on whether to, <laughs> uh, make that awkward for either of those two groups. Like, <laughs> well, do you, do, are you fine if 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 it's just a professional environment? I mean, the Apostle Paul says, you know, I'm not saying you can't associate with unbelievers. Yes, yeah. to do that, you'd have to be out of this world. So I wrote a I wrote a uh, movie called Mercy Rule, which I really like. It's a little baseball movie uh, for Kurt Cameron, and my buddy called me. Uh, and said, Hey, could you write this? I'm doing this little, you know, this little baseball movie with Kirk Cameron. Would you be willing to write the screenplay? And I was hectic busy, like psycho busy. And there was no way I really could fit it in at the time. And I hesitated. And in that hesitation, he said, because he'd already told me he couldn't pay me a ton. Uh, and in that hesitation, he said, I mean, I know this would be really bad for your brand. 
mm. in in New York. But you know, I'd love for you to write it. As soon as he said that, a little light went off in my head of he's not wrong. Like writing a Kirk Cameron baseball movie would be terrible for my brand in New York. Mm. And the fact that I'm now aware of that means I have to do this. <laughs> <laughs> why why though? So oh I mean, I guess you just was that a faith thing for just, you? Just a removal of variables. Okay. Like, you don't want someone to have that control over you. I, yeah, I don't want if I if I feel that at all. Like if I hadn't felt that, if he'd said that and I just laughed, I'm like, no, I don't give a rip. Who cares? You know, I'd, I'd love to work with and Kirk is great and Kirk's a friend and mm-hmm. Um, but in that moment, I never worked with him. I didn't know Kirk Cameron. Kirk Cameron was just this, you know, just this caricature, right? right? This right. evangelical caricature that the right. left has made him. Loves to not, hate. Yeah, Kirk. not the not the real guy. I didn't know the real guy. All I knew was the caricature the left likes to attack. The instant he said it would be bad for your brand to work with Kirk, and I felt that tug of yeah, it would. I knew I had to stomp on that tug. Okay. Like I knew in me, for my sake, for for my spiritual health, I can't let that tug exist. That tug can never exist because if I won't stand with Kirk, why would I stand with Moses? Why would I stand with uh, the Old Testament at all, or the Apostle Paul, or because they're worse for they're your brand. way crazier. <laughs> they're way crazier than Kirk. So <laughs> if the, just to feel that tug, then it was a tiny little tug. But I was like, I know that. I have to police that like mad to lit to work in this industry at all. You have to police that in yourself. So it would be great for your brand to work with fill in the blank. And then you look at the content and the content is terrible. Um, and I have, I have friends who've had to say no to projects with really amazing talent because of what the project would be. And it would be great for their brand to do it. And so you have to like your own personal, brand and relevance and coolness and hipness you have to be you have to be a prophet you just have to be dead to that okay wait you're saying they have to say the other way around yeah it's too good of an opportunity no 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 like it's too good of an opportunity and then but you're willing to swallow a pill where the content's bad oh i see because of the brand opportunity so i see he says i know it'd be bad for your brand to work with kirk somebody else could say i know it'd be great for your brand to work with some Mm -hmm. legend and then you read the script or you look at the I story see. and you're like, ah, you know, I, I'm willing to, I'm really willing to compromise for the purposes of getting further up and further in, in this industry and building my brand. And this is what overwhelmingly people do. They're like, I, I'll make these little sacrifices to get to the mountaintop where then I suddenly will be pure of heart and, and make a great stand and, and change the culture. And no, you won't. Yeah. Wherever you go, there yeah. you are. As soon as you're there, you all you'll have done is practice compromising to not lose your position. And now you'll have a position you don't want to lose and you're just going to, you know, continue playing that game. It's funny how that works on everybody. Yeah. I mean, uh, everyone from, from, I mean, even someone who works at a Christian publisher and has nothing to lose. <laughs> right, yeah. Oh, we can all feel that, right? Yeah. You feel the tug of like, oh, should I comment on that? <laughs> yes. Should I say this publicly? Right. Um, should I share this? Is this a risk? What am I risking? What am I, mean, I risking? Even my wife at the park. You know, yeah. I gets the chance. She she always drops in. Oh yeah, I, my kids go to a Christian school. Or you say my kids go to school. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, just dropping the little Christian in there. And in our yeah. town, Christian school means something really bad. My kids go to Doug Wilson's school. Right <laughs> there's the lean in. Have yeah. you heard of the cult in the town? Because yeah, have you heard of our cult? 
<laughs> we're part of it. It's not really a cult, but that's probably what you've heard. Right. Let's just yeah. use that word for simplicity. Yep. Um, it's, it's so I, I do think that for anybody who's going to be in uh, the industry as a believer, you have to practice ignoring the disdain of the world. I mean, you just have to be immune to the immune to the disdain completely immune to the cool immune to the invitation to the cool and immune uh to the uncool you're willing to hang with the uncool in the industry and you're willing to say no to the cool like you you just have to be willing to live naked for three years and cook over poo you know it's like you just have to be <laughs> isaiah willing. reference <laughs> yes you have to be willing to be a, a prophet um and a mad prophet and not give a rip about the cool or the uncool of the industry. Um, but as far as any, any teenagers who are looking to rise up, how susceptible they are to the cool is something that I can, I can discern in 10 seconds. Hmm. Yeah. You know, as they walk up to me to introduce themselves, it's super easy to tell whether or not they are currently a victim of the world and governing themselves and carrying themselves entirely uh, to try to accommodate their taste to the taste of the world or not. That's easy. It come, it's, it's on the surface. And then if they're just dressed like normal people and it's, and you can't quite read that. Yeah. It's clothes. Yeah. And clothes you, and you get into clothes and hair and piercings and everything else. And then you get in, you get past that and you actually talk to them a little bit about their taste in film. Then, you know, right there, it's revealed instantly. So gotcha. it all, it all starts to cascade. So a teenager who wants to be involved, you need to a work on your immunity to the cool, absolute immunity to the cool and B just craft, like become excellent and know that cream rises. And once yeah. you've become as excellent as you can, where you are, then you start looking at where that excellence can take you. Uh, as long as you are immune to the cool. How do you work on uh, parenting to your children to be immune to the cool? cool <laughs> oh man of uh, just to spring that on you yeah i was i was thinking through it you know totally depends i mean i've done it in um uh, coaching i've done it in plenty of conversation uh my kids are basically amish when it comes to social media uh and so they have uh and not not by force but because we've talked a lot of about it to them and they watch it you know we've we have uh we have actually watched its effect on their peers and discussed it you know when they talk about their their friends who got on social media and we say okay well, let's watch the effects uh how long does it take before two of your friends two of the your the girls in your class have some kind of conflict over whether or not somebody has liked something fast enough or why didn't you like it mm. And they watch this kind of mold and shape dynamics and relationships and yeah um and they exist out of outside of that by design observing it and not envying it and so when you watch it happening uh like a consumer of a story like a consumer of a narrative yeah and you watch its effect on characters it's it's pretty potent right um, yeah for us that's been the little brother as a great test for how immune to the cool are you? Like if you can go do the thing with your little brother yeah, along yeah. with you, that's a great test Yep. for how your attitude yeah. is. And, uh, 
his little brothers aren't as cool. <laughs> yeah. So for me, it's, it's also, um, it'd be really easy for, it, it is really easy for kids to be excited about movies and books and, and those things. And so while I want them to love stories and love narratives, I talk to them a lot about the making of them and how it's made. And we, we do a lot of discussion around the making of that sausage to make it uncool. So they see the mechanics of it. It's not because they don't like the final product. It's to remove the magic. Gotcha. You know, so they're, they're seeing the, they're seeing the trick. They see, see the magic trick. And so it's, they're sort of inoculated to the power of that. Oh, that's really helpful with the TV shows too, because yeah. you can say, Hey, they're setting you up to continue consuming this. That's yep. why they did this plot thing. Yep. Um, or, Oh, did you notice how this character had to do this? Because what are they doing to you? They want you hooked yeah. even for little, little kids. Yeah. Shows. What are they doing to you? Why are they doing it? Yeah. What are the, what are the reasons behind it? Why do you think there are so many seasons of Ninjago? <laughs> yeah. And so they, they do have, they've, we've had a lot of conversations where probably this, the single place where they differentiate from their peers more than any other point and from good peers too, uh, is on film, hmm. uh, on music, but especially film books. Yes. Film. <laughs> like it's, you know, they'll, they'll have arguments with fellow readers and, you know, they'll have plenty of wrangling around, um, you know, around favorite books with peers, peers who are really just fans. They have engulfed a book series like a baby bird. And so they cannot show any discernment or criticism of, of anything. Mm. And this can be a great book series like Tolkien. This can be a weaker book series, but a massive series like Harry Potter. Or this could be Hunger Games or, right. or whatever it might be. Uh, lots of discussion there. Lots of differentiation between my kids and their peers over book taste. Uh, differentiation over music taste. Massive differentiation over film and TV. Okay. You know, one, one kid was shocked. Uh, that my daughter, my my seventeen year old daughter, didn't care for the Spider Man movie about which we podcasted. Mm. I was just was good, stunned. Was, <laughs> was stunned that I didn't that I didn't care for it, and that stunned that she didn't care for it. Wanted to know if I knew that she didn't care for it, and oh wow, she said yeah, basically that she, I didn't care for it either, and he was stunned by that. And was like, but he works in this industry. How could he not? You know, it's like, it's, mm. it's so wonderful. And because my kids can see all the strings and the wires and we've talked through it so much and they see all the manipulation and they see how much their peers, even peers they like and respect, just turn off their brains and consume pop culture like little vacuum cleaners and just let it affect them. That's probably the single place where they are the, the most built to be immune to cool and peer pressure because if you if you build up inoculation, if you build up immunity to pop culture, you also have to, of necessity, build up immunity to peer pressure, which is one of the strongest uh, mechanisms of pop culture. Okay. So just because something's big on TikTok doesn't mean anything. It's when it's big among your peers and your peers are all about it and your peers are pushing it. Uh, and then also when you are standing up in front of your class at, like as they do in logos and playing a song that you have to stand up and play and defend and it's not what anybody else would play and this is what you're standing up and defending um and you're you're arguing about that 
when your taste in film is is far more sophisticated and I, in my opinion, far more sophisticated and interesting than people your age. You know, it's like you're you're just developed way past uh, a lot of of your peers. That pressure kind of goes away a little bit because you have clarity, you have vision, and so because you can see the magic trick, you can't it can't affect you. Like it's just you see it, you see it happening. Um, gotcha. And your peers can't, and so they're having their minds blown, and you're not, and they're trying to pressure you into being amazed by something. But you you saw the strings, like <laughs> you you saw the strings okay. working. So I think many does that answer the question? It's kind of a very long. I think so. I think many of the parents who are listening probably expected you to do the typical like, "Oh no, Hollywood is where good kids go and become deceived by the world." Yeah. But your response is kind of that that could happen. That's going to happen in your high school. <laughs> oh, absolutely, and in a great high school, in a good high school, yeah, among good Christian families and a good Christian high school and a good Christian community. Pop so, culture has a direct pipeline into the eyeballs and the brains and the minds, uh, into the loves and hates and affections of every kid in this, on this planet. And that's one of the reasons why we have this podcast. Like stories are soul food. They shape people. So is that why you decided to try to move or add filmmaking to, to your professional? Kind of. I mean, it was more... I guess, why did you jump into Mercy Rule then? Because that, I guess that would be the first one and then many people probably I actually, heard so here's the, here's the, my backstory in film is I sold, uh, Aaron Wrench, my partner, uh, was my literary agent to start and then my production partner. He sold my first book deal to Random House, uh, Lee Pike Ridge and the Coverage Trilogy. Lee Pike Ridge came out May 2007 and then, uh, I'm kind of sitting around like there goes, there goes a novel. And then 100 cupboards released at the end of 2007, which was a ridiculous decision uh, from random house, by the way, I'm not bitter. Um, you can hear it on the podcast. Yeah. I'm actually, episodes. I'm actually not, I'm over it, but let's just say there's any confusion. They released first book of the 100 cupboards trilogy on December 26th, 2007 boxing day, boxing day, 2007. The same year, I'd already released a novel, May of 2007, and here comes 100 Covered. So it was not, it was barely awards eligible. They like burned it for awards for the next year. It like squeaked in. Nobody could read it in time. Anyway, it was weird. It was a super weird decision, but they did it. But on the heels of that, I suddenly had two critically acclaimed books that were out. There was noise. I was a, I was a storyteller. Here we go. And... You know, I had maybe six months of work, seven months of work to do a year. I couldn't just pump out a novel every four months. It's like there's the next novels coming out in a year and I'm editing Dandelion Fire. And there's all this downtime in between drafts with my editor. I turn in a draft and then I'm just waiting. Mm -hmm. uh, so in that interim, uh, Aaron set me up with a story consultancy with DreamWorks Animation. And so it was right away i mean it was 2008 i started working in hollywood and oh, okay and started working on story consultancies and generating concepts and, and doing all that kind of stuff and then aaron said we need to have a production company of our own i said no we shouldn't um and it was i mean i don't know a couple months later we had one <laughs> <laughs> it was sort of how things go 
we I would like to say we both do that to each other sometimes, but he's in this case, Aaron was the one who saw the the need and I didn't think so. So you, um, you just to sort that out, you thought you didn't want to go into the being able to do it all yourself. It's like, I'm just a storyteller. I'll tell stories. Other people will make these. It's fine. Okay. And he said, no, we're going to really need our own production company so we can put stuff into the world we want to put into the world and have some control. And so we did that. And the first thing we produced was Collision. And so the documentary Collision with Christopher Hitchens and my dad, and that was 2008. And then that production and, and we just kind of kept going. And so I started optioning projects. I optioned Leap I Rage, my first novel, uh, to one of the producers on Braveheart, et cetera. He's the line producer actually on Braveheart, but I didn't know that dis distinction until much later. The credit is just producer, 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 producer. And then, uh, then there was a uh, writer strike. And so the writers they were trying to get to adapt the novel uh, were all gone. And so they had somebody internal uh, try to adapt it. And I read that and just thought, man, why, you know, I should, I should just do this. This is much easier than me giving notes would just be if I do this. And so I started actually writing more scripts and not just doing story consultancy and IP generation, like moving into the actual screenwriting. Uh, that guy's name was Andrew, uh, Andrew Hyatt, great guy. Uh, like him a lot. I take full credit for his career because later on I sat him down and convinced him into you know becoming a director. He went on to direct Paul, that movie, a uh, great movie. Okay. Um, and has done other cool stuff. And I, I think that all goes in my column, Andrew. Thank you very much. Um, we did tell you what this episode would be about. <laughs> Self-absorption. <laughs> yeah, no, Andrew's gone on to do cool stuff, but that kind of got me sucked into writing. Um, and then I started writing other other concepts and just things started started moving and growing in that direction. And so there's been a regular rhythm of uh, writing a novel and then working in film, writing a novel, working in film for since 2008, I mean, okay. like all, the, all the way back uh, from the very beginning. And then it kind of tipped, trying to remember like when the balance tipped, it was probably uh, 16 maybe okay uh, 2016 it actually tipped and so i was actually doing more film and tv work than i was novel writing gotcha and so like, okay it was actually went became majority left coast minority new york around then and now it's man it's all consuming mm -hmm. so it's Okay, can you kind of walk us through, because um, then River Thief was the first thing you did on your own, right? As, as far as you produced and wrote it, but you'd already written pl plenty of- Yeah, I've written, I'd written a lot of stuff, but it's yeah. uh, River Thief was the first, it was, it was basically a little rogue independent production of did we want to do stuff that was more self-contained in Moscow with Real Pope Productions that we just controlled. Yeah. Uh, we did Hound of Heaven as a short film uh, because an investor just said, do you want, would you be willing to make a live action short film around uh, the poem, The Hound of Heaven? And so I said, with uh, Hisao Kurosawa producing. Um, so legendary producer's son who was on Dreams and, and other things with his, with his father. I was like, yeah, of course we would. That'll be, that'll be fun. Uh, so we came up with that and kind of 
challenged ourselves to do that locally and then pretty high concept yeah short very film. very surreal yeah. short film yeah took that to rain dance in london and then went on um to river thief and we had this micro budget to work with and i wanted to uh how to politely say this i wanted to flip the bird is that a polite way to say it? <laughs> I wanted More to, polite than some. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to flip the bird to YA filmmaking and storytelling and uh, the faith market. Having come through okay. Mercy Rule, which I wrote and which was made, uh, the Kirk Cameron thing, I, I had a lot of conversations with Christian, uh, the controllers, the gatekeepers around Christian studios, but really the Christian divisions of studios. And I hated the rules, the guardrails that they'd set up of what made a story Christian or not. Okay. Like what kind, what kind of guardrails? Is that the stuff that's in the stuff that makes it Velveeta cheese really? So where it has to be, the film has to be fundamentally evangelistic. Uh, oh, you have yeah. to have sort of the moment of falling on your knees and repentance in the rain. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, those things have to happen. In a and, romance movie, you kiss in the rain. In yes. a Christian movie, you got to fall on your there's knees this in the rain. Go a gospel. There has to be a conversion slash uh, altar call. You you have to have an altar call of some kind. Mm -hmm. um, at least then, that's what they're telling me. So mercy rule was not Christian enough, and I got to have a lot of these conversations. And it turns out this is me. This goes back to my novels being rejected by Christian publishing houses. This is just who I am. I live in this in this space. So it turns out mercy rule wasn't Christian. And so I wanted to kind of openly defy faith film and also YA storytelling. So YA storytelling is basically the catechism to all good girls that they, they absolutely must be defiled. You know, they must, this is the catechism, the bad boy comes and you, you must be defiled. Okay. So you gotta fall for him. You gotta fall for this guy. You, you have gotta to go hook line and sinker yep, you gotta you loser. gotta you gotta ruin your life and i knew with river thief i knew exactly what i needed to do to go off to festivals and be a darling i knew what i had to put in that story to make it work uh and i didn't for make it work in scare quotes for the secular industry i knew how to make it mainstream ya catechism that would make a lot of money and Oh man, uh, can we talk about those specific little twists? Oh yeah, absolutely. Should we spoil it all? No, we'll we'll do it. We'll okay. get there. All right. And I knew what to do to make it, uh, make Christian gatekeepers wet their pants with joy. I knew, <laughs> I knew both of those things, and I wanted to defiantly just walk down the middle and just refuse. Mm. And so I was given certain parameters. With that came with the money that I had, I had to. The budget was really low. We were under half a million dollars, and I had to use Tommy Cash, Johnny Cash's brother. So those are the rules, and that was kind of the limit. So as long as I, and then I had no time because everything it was just bizarre. So there was this as wild clock got put on the wall, and we had no time at all, and it turned into this wild experiment. Like it turned into a really a film school experiment like can we do this and i didn't have a story i had you know basically 400 grand tommy cash and three weeks <laughs> as, and no script um i woke up 
with uh, the entirety of the story intact. I dreamt the entirety of it, including locations. Like it's, you know, so we shot in four cities and two states, and but it's all here, this region. And so I and I walked into Aaron Wrench's office and said, "Okay, I've got the movie." Like I, I just woke up with it, and just told him the story. This is the story. And he said, "Okay, let's do it. Let's go." And he started working the phones for casting. I flew to L.A. to go to my cousin's wedding. <laughs> and <laughs> is went, that part of the movie? <laughs> yeah, went to the wedding, went to the reception. After the reception, went to the hotel in Santa Monica. My wife went to bed, and I stayed up all night writing the script, which I had in my head, but I hadn't written down. Um, and Aaron was casting and I wrote all night and till we got, went to the airport and got on the plane, flew home and sat down and wrote and just basically knocked out the screenplay in about three days, two and a half to three days, and just sent it out to people as they were flying in. And we talked to Joel Courtney and he had a TV deadline. We had to be done with him. Uh, you know, it's like he was, he was going to show up and, and do this with us. And Tommy was flying in. All these people were coming in to do this. Then it was just, like I said, it was just film school renegade. This is what we're doing. Um, and the concept, the whole, the whole concept behind it is I wanted to, because of the pressure from the faith market about we need conversions, we need conversions. I wanted to do a deathbed conversion that was the only deathbed conversion in scripture, which is the thief on the cross. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to tell a story inspired very loosely on the thief on the cross, the concept, the concept of which is a guilty man dying next to an innocent man. So the repentance of a guilty man dying next to an innocent man, the conceit is in the river thief, the guilty man gets the innocent man killed. The innocent man is dying because of the guilty man, but is forgiving him. The guilty, the guilty man is forgiven and, and it receives forgiveness on his deathbed. So I'd heard from all the schlocky Velveeta people, they wanted a conversion. We want to see a conversion. We want to see a conversion. And I, and you said, I'll in give my you mood, one. was like, I'll give you a conversion. <laughs> I'll give you a conversion. And you know what? I'm going to base it on the thief on the cross. It's going to be right up the middle. I'm going to rip it right out of the gospels. And so- And you I, won't like it. And you'll hate it. Because <laughs> guess what? It's coming straight out of the barrel and I'm not putting it on, not putting it on ice. There's not getting watered down. It's just going to be right up okay. the gut. Yeah. Uh, and so that's what it was. And so I stole dialogue at the end surrounding the death conversion straight out of the Gospels. And I just, I actually just pull that dialogue um, and then did, in fact, get reactions of executives saying, I'm just, I don't see how this is a Christian conversion. Mm. And I was like, now these are lines taken from the gospels i'm taking dialogue from the gospels around this but it's like well but we have new rules like we have new standards for how conversion should should be um it got rated r i wanted to run uh, with the distributor that picked it up i wanted to run a uh, it was a secular distributor because the Christian distributors wouldn't touch it <laughs> uh, i wanted to run a uh, rated r for violence right I don't know. I mean, tell you, yeah, it's like there's there's one, one shooting, right? Yeah, and you think about the fact that the the movie Taken is PG thirteen. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like this is ratings are broken. Yeah, I wanted to say I wanted to run a campaign of the cleanest R rated film in history, (laughs) Um, rated R for old timey religion. I wanted to do all sorts of 
<laughs> like things like that. And the, the distributor was terrified of that. They were just like, no, can we please not? Because uh, they were mainstream and did not understand, you know, what was going on. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, it's all the way clean. It's a completely clean film, except for uh, a guy gets shot. Flannery O'Connor. There's a guy who gets it's rated shot. R for O'Connor is what it, it is. Rated, rated R for a guy gets shot. <laughs> One guy, gets two guys. Sorry. Also, it's movie business, so he didn't really get shot. <laughs> yeah. So we shot a coconut full of beef liver and Hershey's syrup. That's what we shot. Um, <clears throat> Which turns out is pretty convincing based <laughs> yeah. on a few. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, anyway, um, so we did that, and it's we just released it unrated instead of accepting the R rating. We just Okay. Refuse, we refuse to accept it. Um, but then on the flip side, we've got a talented actress named Raleigh Kane. He was playing our lead and she did it. She did a great job um, across so, from Jill Courtney. And the concept there was she's the good girl. Bad guy blows into town, likes her, you know, starts kind of pursuing her. Um, and the catechism for this formula, for this kind of storytelling is that she has to fall for him. Yeah, so it's Greece, right? So she, she has, has to sleep. She has him. to reinvent herself. Yeah. In order. So even if she guy. even if she regrets it, even if she'd regretted it in my story, if she had fallen for him, if if she had given in, if she had slept with the guy and then he died and she's brokenhearted, but she'll always have that one night and that was the summer that she grew up like like oh no i'm a festival darling this thing goes you know gotcha you know it's like especially if she wins he dies she gets all the money and she is sort of if i turned her into a little bit of the praying mantis um <laughs> you know it's like that's then it's just i mean absolutely beloved because then it's not just footloose it's not just the classic 1980s 1990s catechism of bad boy gets he must have the right to feed on young innocent women a la twilight mm -hmm. that's that's just the standard if you invert that or subvert it at all then you can go party at festivals and so to have right him come so she still won yeah you have not. have him come in and and be that predator who has the right as the bad boy blowing through town in the summer to feed on the innocent girl but actually have her become more sophisticated, jaded, and be his destruction and and still be kind of like heartbroken about it, but be the devourer. Like she fed on him and he's destroyed uh, and she wins. Yeah. Instead of her innocence triumphs, instead of her purity triumphs, her, her level of depravity triumphs. Like gotcha. if she beat him in that regard, then, then yeah, I'd be off at Sundance Toronto and all these other things with that. Uh, still, we were in the middle enough that it was very confusing to people because people could tell that it was in the mainstream industry. People could tell that it was this defiance of evangelical film tropes. And so we got a lot of attention from SAG. We got a lot of attention in other, in other places. Um, you know, it's like we had we were having conversations with A24 about releasing it. A24 is the, you know, they're the the edgy darlings of all things subversion, and so they were they were right there because they were, they they were very drawn to the idea of the flippancy in the film towards 
uh, the way conversion was handled, that this guy converts and is shot in the head. You know, it's like, it's just, yeah. Um, that it is, is just this anti happy ending. Um, so anyway, anyway, it was really funny. And then the end, we ended up releasing it through uh, freestyle and the funniest thing that happened to us the whole time was that it got pirated into Arabic. Somebody dubbed it, sub- oh, yeah. subtitled it in Arabic <laughs> and put it up on YouTube and it got millions and millions of views. <laughs> on this film uh, in the Arabic subtitles before the distributor took it down. And that thrilled me. I, lo- I loved it. I loved watching that view count just go on the Arabic subtitled <laughs> version of River Thief. Some so, Arabic screenwriters cutting his teeth on Andy Wilson. <laughs> just, yeah. And directing, <laughs> directing is wildly hard. I mean, it is incredibly hard, but, yeah. but it's always hard and it's really hard when you say, hey, let's do this incredibly insane film school experiment of writing a, a movie over a weekend yeah. and producing it over, you know, 10 working days. And you know. so would your, I guess it's funny. People always want to talk to you about like, so what didn't you like about your own project? And, <laughs> right. and, and, and I guess your, 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 your response is just, I'd want to do it again with, or oh, I, yeah. I want to do more movies. Yeah, do it <laughs> with again. With more time. Yeah, no, you want <laughs> to <More> take money. <laughs> the, it really was a test for us of do we want to do this? Yeah. And the answer was, yeah, we want to do this. So and that's what it was for. That's what we were doing. Mm-hmm. Do we want to do this? Do I want to direct? Yeah. Because I'd moved, I'd moved from like, okay, I'm doing story consultancy. I'm, I'm writing screenplays and then learning that the director is actually the storyteller. Yeah. Do I want to direct? And that was this experiment of like, hey, let's just do this and see if I want to direct. Yeah, so all of this is kind of an answer to the question of yeah. how do you work in Hollywood? Yeah. You know, get uh, good at what you want to do and try it. <laughs> get, good, get as good as you can where you where you want to be. And then before you go into any situation where you're working with uh, the industry, have as much leverage as you possibly can in any relationship. Gotcha. So River Thief was really, really fun. Um, is incredibly fun. And it's also interesting because I'm I'm not unrealistic about you know it's like what it is a four hundred thousand dollar movie that we made in three weeks you know it's like this is you know I'm I'm not playing make believe about uh, we learned a ton about visual effects we learned a ton about everything in this uh, in this film I'm really proud of it you know it's like I'm I'm super proud of it given the constraints we were given I'm very proud of the film mm-hmm. and it's uh, and really grateful to everybody who's involved but it also is really interesting because it it taught me a ton from the inside about how consumers view films. And it is, it is really interesting. So the industry, I kind of knew how the industry would view films and I'm still learning there. There's still a lot to be learned there, but consumers will talk to you when they, when they sit down and watch what they're putting in is they're putting in 80 minutes. So they're putting in an hour and a half. That's their investment or they're buying a ticket or they're buying, uh, they're renting it or, or whatever they're doing. And they will measure and compare based on that. So if you have somebody go, if somebody watches River Thief and they pay $1.99 to watch it, they're going to compare it to other things they paid $1.99 to watch. And it doesn't matter that you made it in three weeks or $400,000. They're, they're paying $1.99 for something that Marvel made for $250 million. So they're going, you know, they're going to say, hey, this actor and that actor. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's actually kind of an amazing, it's amazing to see the marketplace 
the the way it, and I understand that. Like in their right. defense, they're paying a dollar ninety nine for the experience, so they're gauging their dollar ninety nine rental uh, against that eighty minute experience that they just had. The dollar ninety nine, and we're a really really spoiled consumer culture, uh, and we're in a yeah, bubble. We're in a anything. Yeah, and we're in a bubble of content. We're in a massive massive bubble where we cannot sustain this amount of content on this many platforms at this kind of expenditure it just doesn't pencil this people many people won't subscribe to all of it this many people can't keep spending this many billions of dollars making content that doesn't make money so we're in a due for a filmmaking recession yeah okay we're, we're due for a significant uh, contraction and you can see that already in the contraction of quality around like animated films you know, the quality of narrative features. And you look back at the kind of the golden age when features would come out, narrative features would come out um, animated and be huge, huge global sensations. Um, the last big one being Frozen. And people, when Frozen came out, were like, man, animated movies aren't what they used to be. You know, they're just not what they used to be. And now you look at the animated films that are getting punched out on streaming platforms. And you think, there's just oh, tons of boy. them. Oh, oh boy. And the quality is just the narrative quality, the character quality, the art quality is just skidding downward. Yeah. And that's, that's because we are in this bubble. So the bubble is, uh, is super interesting. Okay. So everyone would know how to compare like a, a, a dollar menu burger with like a steak. Yeah. But you're saying on a streaming platform, you would have all those different things and be treating them with the exact same rubric. Is, is yeah. that sort of what you're saying? Yeah. And, and, then, and, and so you bounce around and you're bouncing through Netflix things and, and your investment's the same. Your personal investment is the same. And so you measure them and compare them yeah. as if they're equals, as if they're equal products. And that's whether you're renting them or if they're just on the streamer that you subscribe to. Yeah. And it, it has really odd effects on people. Um, meaning, meaning how critical they are or how just what they don't like or what they want you to do differently. Yeah. What they want. And I would say not really, not really how critical they are or it's more like what they're critical of. You know, it's like they're, it's not that they're, uh, it's not the amount of criticism. I think the amount of criticism is the, is the same. It's the things that they choose to be critical of and the bigness that they desire or don't desire. Okay. You know, in, in things is, is kind of interesting. Yeah. And so some people want length. They want just maximum escapism. You know, they want to be gone for a long period of time. They want long movies. Long movies cost money. <laughs> uh, or they want series or they want whatever, big effects. They want action. They want more characters. There would have been, you know, they, they don't understand that just adding characters is adding tons of money. And oh, they okay. don't think of that as like a budgetary yeah you know a budgetary item or or things like that yeah i mean i keep referencing it but i i it's fun when you watch a movie like river thief and feel it feels like an o'connor short story yeah with the same sort of tightness of scope yep tightness of setting and just uh, uh you know you kind of know what you're buckled in for you know you it is a yeah. limited cast so all those limiting things i think are fun it's what makes a short story work yeah it is um, i mean i think that films and short stories um, I think there's a compatibility there where trying to take a novel to a film is difficult. Yeah. Trying to take a novel to a series, uh, 
makes a little more sense in some ways than a novel to a feature. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Well, I mean, that's what, that's what we had. We had the, the questions for William and then, uh, also, you know, little river thiefage, right? Exactly. Little river thievery. Um, and then of course, heading into hopefully us getting to see your first television series at some point. Well, we already have that with Hell and Ninja. Well, you're right. <laughs> I wasn't thinking of uh, the come look on, at, look Brian. At me de- de- Live action, okay, fine. Devaluing the yeah, animation yeah. right now. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's those are coming. Those are coming. There's a there's a big old raft of logs coming down the river that will hopefully all reach consumers. Um, well, they can't all, right? Or it wouldn't be movie business. Yeah, right. <laughs> you always describe it as pushing the car out of the ditch. You push the car out of the ditch or never quite wildebeests across the crocodile river. Oh, okay. you know, it's like, this is, <laughs> they, they're never all going to make it. Right. They're not all going to make it. There Crocodiles wouldn't, there wouldn't be a nature doc. Crocodiles got to <laughs> eat. Uh, but yeah, there's a, there's a ton. And I hear constantly from Ashdown fans and I'm really grateful that we pursued the silent bells in the format that we did because they get charged when the chapter comes out. So I've not charged anybody for anything they haven't received. <laughs> I haven't taken your money. I haven't taken any money from anybody uh, for something they haven't received yet. Um, and the other thing, the other thing is with Ashtown is it's not, um, it's, it's not my work. It's like trying to facilitate. It is, but it's trying to facilitate the creation of this book and the completion of the series in gaps, in small gaps, and. I'm still on it. Like I'm really, I really want to push to the finish line, but it has been incredibly rugged because every time I'm like, okay, I just turned in this draft of this, uh, this episode script. Um, and then it's like, well, there are, okay. Now there's a feature script that got ordered or, mm. you know, it's like, there's just so much. And it's like eight weeks. How's eight weeks for a first draft of this feature? And yeah. Well, hopefully people can cut you some slack now that they know the recession, the film recession is coming. The film recession, I got to make hay, people. You'll, you'll get Pretty back. soon I'll just be sitting in my room, in my house. With a typewriter. With a typewriter <laughs> and homemade paper. <laughs> Toilet paper for sure. <laughs> yeah. I'll be pulping my own paper and I'll be uh, finishing I'll Ashdown. Be finishing Ashdown. Uh, While the world burns. I don't have that many more chapters. That's the funny thing. I probably have eight more chapters of Ashdown. Uh, and it's it's just right there but still clearing the decks is is been uh, I feel like I'm shoveling snow in a blizzard right now on the TV side. Yeah. So I've I've written um four currently I've written four episodes uh two TV pilots and a couple regular uh regular episodes and on onto a feature and some other stuff. That's and fun. It's like, oh, I'm not sitting around, I promise. And I owe, <laughs> well, Bri- I owe Brian nonfiction too. It's not just, it's not just, uh, oh yeah. It's not just Silent Bells. I guess they haven't heard about it. That, yeah, uh, there's, there's non, I think we've talked about it. I, owe, I have nine nonfiction too. Mm-hmm. So there's two, there's two books sitting in the queue waiting for this like blizzard of film and TV to die down. I keep shoveling my sidewalk. And then getting to the other side and turning around and just shoveling it back because it's drifting over. It's awesome. And it's great. It's really great. I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for the opportunity and for this moment in time to be doing it. But it's wild. It's super wild. That's great. Uh, We can't wait. 
Well, I, I speak for everyone. Yeah, good, good, <laughs> good. I'm glad. I am glad. All righty. Okay, well, that's it. That's, that's SASF it. 80. That's a, the 80th. Episode 80. We promised something special and this was it. I still have the doc for chapter 16 of the Silent Bells open on my desktop, staring at me in the hopes that today's the day. Every day is today the day? Is today the day? Maybe today's the day. Tonight might be the night. You never know. Tonight might be the night. Don't, but don't bet on it. <laughs> I'm pretty sure not tonight. <laughs> but You heard it here first, soon. folks. Yeah, already. Thanks for listening to SASFA. We're very happy to have you all along on this ride with us. Appreciate all the feedback, all the questions, and all the good words from all the listeners around the country and even some internationally. Anyways, what I got for you right now is <laughs> the announcement that Fantastical Wordcraft, N.D. Wilson's School Of, is actually on Canon Plus and available to listen to. Um, I think the last time I mentioned it, it was at some point in the future, but it's there now. So for the low, low price of 99 cents, with code SASFA99, S-A-S-F-99. Uh, you can pay 99 cents for your first month, watch the course, and then if you can't find anything else to listen to, you can unsubscribe. Or you can stay subscribed to continue to support us and show us the love. Anyways, you might be asking, what is the School of Fantastical Wordcraft? It's basically Nate's 10 to 15 minute talks, nine of them, plus an intro on how to tell stories. So if you've ever wanted to tell stories, nonfiction or otherwise, um, and you thought, man, I should, I should become a writer. I want to finish that novel. This is the course for you. Nate always says it's for kids as young as anyone who's ever said, hey, I want to be a writer when I grow up, and for adults as old as the same thing. So there you go. Some of my favorite lectures. I think the plot and outlining and story architecture chapters is especially useful. And then, of course, uh, Nate's descriptions of how to write the basics are also key. Anyways, there's the pitch for N.D. Wilson's School of Fantastical Wordcraft available on Canon Plus now. You can subscribe using that code SASF99 if you're a first-time subscriber and you go to mycanonplus.com. <laughs>